Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh out loud humor and hitting you between the eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants because here we go. All righty. Are you ready? So basically, we stopped in John chapter five. And yeah, you're like, we're, we're going to be in John chapter five for a little while. You're like, Shannon, we've been in John chapter five for about three weeks. Okay, you need to get a grip and move on. Nope, I don't. Um, so we're going to start in verse 25, but I want to remind you of some thoughts we had in the verses um, before. And so Jesus is being interrogated, as you know, by the religious leaders, by the Jews. When we see that, we know that it is a certain portion of the Jews, and that is the religious leaders. And he's being interrogated by them. And he has basically given them his testimony. And what he has claimed is uh, astonishing, actually. It's astonishing to them. He is claiming that he is equal with God that he is deity. Um, at the end of last week, we looked, and basically what he is saying is, listen, I am equal with God, not only in knowledge, but love, in power, in authority, and in honor. And he is claiming his deity. Um, I read to you at the end of last week a, a comment by the Pillar New Testament commentary. It says, in a, theistic, in a theistic universe, such a statement belongs to one who is himself to be addressed as God or to stark insanity. There is no middle ground. He either is who he says he is, and who does he say he is? He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is equal in all of those things. He is either who he says he is or he is insane. And we talked about the fact that this is the whole mission of John writing this letter. I mean, this gospel is because he is saying, I've written all these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. And he basically states that once again in verse 24 where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, meaning message, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He who believes my message, the message from the one who has sent me, and we're going to see over and over, if you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. And so if you believe my message, you will have eternal life. And so we go into the section now where he's going to continue. Um, he has given his testimony now, and now he is going to begin to give the testimonies or the witnesses of others, okay? And so we're going to look at that. I'm going to read you the whole section, then I'm going to kind of break it up. So starting in verse <clears throat> 25, we're going to read through verse 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, I'm actually going to start talking about the last verses of that. I'm going to look at John 5, 28 through 29. I want you to see something about that. Um, you need to understand that Jesus will raise all the dead. He will raise all the dead, all who are in the tombs. Daniel 12, 2 shares this with us, where it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we find out that he will raise all the dead, <clears throat> both believer and unbeliever. Acts 24, 15. See, when I have to look it up, then it gives you time to write it down. Right? Y'all are saying, I love this. She goes too fast, I hear all the time. Acts 24, 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I need you to let that sink in. Jesus will raise all the dead. We will be raised from the dead by Jesus. He is superior to all. Piper says this, John Piper, he holds them in being and will give existence <clears throat> to their decomposed bodies so that there is a continuity between the body that was and the body that will be raised. He lets no one go out of existence. There is no such loss for the righteous and no such hope for the wicked. Jesus raises them all. And he does it, it says, by his mighty voice. It says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Wow, that should not surprise us. Should hear his voice. Who is he? He's the word. He is the Logos, right? Thessalonians 4.16 says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the idea of repeating what has been said over and over and over, announcing it, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. It is going to be with his command, his voice. Shouldn't surprise us. What did John chapter 1 say? What is the whole thesis of the book of John? In the beginning was the word, the logos, right? And he said he was with God and he was God. What has Jesus been saying in his testimony? I am deity. I am the logos. I am the word. I was with God, distinct from him, but I am God. And he says, and all things were made through me and by me. And it also says in the first chapter of John, in him was life. And that that life was the light of man. It all came into existence by the word. Then what do you think the resurrection is going to be based on? The word, his command. The resurrection is just reconstructing parts of the material world. When the creator speaks... Creation must obey. Jesus is the resurrection in the future, but he is also the resurrection 
of the present. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Um, I believe this is talking not only about, yes, I mean, I think it is talking about the raising of physical life, but more, I think it's talking about spiritual life. Okay, let me show you a little bit of a distinction between the verses. In verse 25, do you see that it says, those who hear will live? Those who hear will live. And in verse 28 through 29, what does it say? All will hear. So in verse 28 and 9, we are for sure talking about the last days when we have a resurrection of all the dead. But in verse 25, I do believe it is talking about being dead in our sins and being made alive in Christ Jesus. Now, I also do think it's relevant to physical as well because we're going to see that in order for them to understand spiritual things, what does he often do? He does the physical that we can see. And so Jesus' words brought life. We see this. I think that's the whole gist of uh, the four miracles in a row in Mark. Do you remember the four miracles in, the row, in a row? Jesus goes out, he takes his disciples to the other side and they encounter a storm. You remember that? And they think they're gonna die and they're freaking out. These fishermen who, if anybody knew what to do with the storm, it would be with these fishermen. Okay, their grandpas were fishermen, their dads were fishermen, they're fishermen. They know the Sea of Galilee, but at this point, they're like, yeah, this is beyond us. We're going to die. And so they wake Jesus up, and he stands up, and you know the story. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and he says, peace be still. And nature obeys him. Why? Because when the creator speaks, the creation must obey. And so he brings peace to the storm. And he shows that he is the God over everything natural. So if he can create all things with his word and they obey him, I have no problem knowing that when it comes to a new heaven and a new earth, he's got it. Right? He gets to the other side. What happens? Remember? What does he encounter? Yeah, the monster. Right? Why is no one on the shore right there? Uh, because a monster lives in the area, a man who is possessed by a legion of demons, the demoniac. And so you have the whole experience of this demoniac. Um, what, what would Satan love for man to experience living in the tombs, living in your death, the death of your sin? Um, he cut himself with stones, self-mutilation, shame. He was in emotional torment 24-7, he had supernatural strength. He was naked, representing shame. So that is all of the enemy. That's what the enemy wants. But yet, you know what happened. In one command, Jesus did what? He sent them into the swine. And so with a command, he shows that not only is he God over everything natural, but he is also God over everything supernatural. And so when I know that one day it says that my enemy will be destroyed and will be no more, I have confidence to know. Do you see what he's showing them? He's giving them a glimpse of who he is and what the kingdom will be like. When he comes back, do you remember what happens next? Jairus, the religious leader, comes to get him, his daughter's sick, and then you have the interruption of the hemorrhaging woman. 
And that's the most beautiful uh, scene. I can't really, I don't have time to teach it to you today. But basically, through Jesus, we see that he not only heals her physically, but he restores her to wholeness into her family, into her community. And so his words not only heal, they restore. And so at the end of all things, not only will I be made whole in my physical body, I will be glorified, but we will have a restoration of relationship, a wholeness. It's a beautiful picture. And then, do you remember by this time, after the interruption, what's happened? Jairus' daughter has died, and he literally goes and he raises her from the dead. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. In him, he has life. He has life in himself. And so we know that in the last days, he has the power over life and death. He is showing this so that we can get a glimpse. We know this with Lazarus. Lazarus in John eleven twenty four, 24, he asked Martha, do you believe your your brother will be raised. And she said, well, of course I believe that he will be raised in the last days in the resurrection. Why? She didn't understand this part of verse 25, which is what? The hour is coming and is now here, right? Now here. She is literally looking in the face of the resurrection and the life. The creator was standing before her. The same mighty voice that called all things together into existence would speak the words and she would watch her brother come out of the tomb. That same voice will one day command and every person will come out of the tomb. But it's more than that. He is saying, I am now here. Salvation has now come. My voice, my message, if you believe my message, I will take you from death unto life. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Only physical can birth physical. Only spiritual can birth spiritual. I am here to bring life. I got to thinking about, you know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is that going to be? It's through us. Do you understand that? The very spirit of God has been put in us. We have the power of the risen Lord inside of us, and we have been commissioned, now that you have the Holy Spirit, go and be my witnesses unto all the earth. What we are doing is through the power of the spirit of God, we are taking God's kingdom, what it would be like, what he showed us. He showed us what it would be like. We are to take that to the world. And I got to thinking about it. What, what are my words like? Because if you looked at those four events, I can tell you just some things. Jesus' words brought peace to the storm. His words didn't create the storm. It brought peace. It brought peace to the storm. Sometimes he would calm the storm. Sometimes he would calm the person in the storm. But his, he was a man that spoke words of peace. Do I speak words of peace? <laughs> or do I stir up? Sometimes I think my words stir up the wind. They don't calm the wind. And listen, we're not perfect in that. We have a, the emotion, you know, a storm raging inside of us. Um, and sometimes I'm just like, Lord, zip them, staple them, 
do whatever you have to do, right, to keep these lips closed. Um, but do my words bring peace? I wonder, you know, because his words also set the captive free. <clears throat> he cast out the demons. He freed the man from that bondage. Do my words set people free? Or do they put them in bondage? Then I think about the fact that he came and not only did his words bring healing to the hemorrhaging woman, but restoration. His words brought people back together, restored relationships. Um, do I do that? Or do I harm them? Do I stand in the way of them? And do my words, at the end of the day, do my words bring life? I could really ponder about that for a while. Do my words bring life? And not just, you know, the fact that I share the gospel, but do my words really create life inside another? And so I think we need to realize that we're here as the imagers of God to bring the kingdom of heaven, to, to give them a taste of what it would be like. And we do it on this earth. In 526, it says, For the, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So we need to realize that Jesus is saying, listen, I am eternal. I was with God before the beginning began, and I am God. There, has never, there was never a time when there was no Son. And thus, the Son is a perfect image of the Father. And in this case, the Son has life in himself, just like the Father has life in himself. He is the source. That life was the light of man. I don't want you to think that he was like a prophet where God worked through him to bring life to others. He brought the life. He was deity. And then in 527... Ooh, this is a good verse. It says, and he, was, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, they would have recognized that phrase, the son of man. I want to read it to you um, out of Daniel chapter 7 so that you get a gist of what he's saying. Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 13 and read through, uh, I'll just read 13 and 14. All right, it says, I saw in the night vision, so Daniel has described um, beasts, human empires on the earth that are described as beasts. Boy, can we relate to that. I mean, really, do y'all not realize that mankind is corrupt? Most every uh, man-made empire on the earth is corrupt. I'm not surprised because where there's man, there's potential for what? Corruption, <clears throat> okay, on either side. And so when you look at the empires of men, no wonder it would look like a beast, okay? I mean, honestly, I think if we drained the swamp, the ring around the bathtub would be so bad we wouldn't even be able to breathe, okay? And so... But then you see the contrast of what is going to happen in the end. In, in Daniel chapter 7, it says this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one 
like a son of man, very opposite than the beasts described. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you understand what he is saying to them? And by the way, anytime you see clouds in the Old Testament, it is usually referring to judgment. So look at Daniel uh, 7.13 and tell me, where is Daniel going? What does it say? And he came on the clouds. We have a picture of judgment. I'm going to show you that in a second. And he comes, what? What's the, what's the preposition right there? To the ancient of days. He is not coming to the earth. He is coming before the ancient of days. And the ancient of days gives him absolute glory and dominion. And like I said, so this is a picture where full authority and dominion, the right to judge, is going to be all his. Ezekiel, let me show you some about these clouds. Ezekiel 33. <clears throat> I want you to get familiar with this language. Ezekiel 33. I'll just read you some. Just write them down. I know it's hard to find. It says, for the day is near. So this is prophecy. For the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Another reference is Joel 2, 1 through 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And it's always talking about a judgment that is coming on the land of Israel, okay? A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people. So any time, most of the time, when you hear this idea of clouds or coming on the clouds, another one is Isaiah 19.1, if you want to go look at that. It is talking about judgment. So this is what they hear. He calls himself the son of man. They know that because what he is saying is at the end of the empires of man, there is one coming that is going to be coming on the clouds in great judgment and he is going to appear before the ancient of days and the ancient of days will give him full glory and dominion over all the earth. This was no little claim. And what does he say? After that, that is when he says, so do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Do you see? What is he claiming? He is basically saying, listen, I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He did not mince words in his testimony. He is saying, you're not getting it. I am and the Father are one. We are one. We are the same in knowledge. We are the same in power. We are the same in love. We're the same in authority. We are the same in honor. Full glory and dominion has been given to me. I started it with a voice, and I promise you one day in the end, you will hear my voice again. 
He is not mincing words. I'm surprised they didn't pass out, to be quite honest with you. Okay, this is no light language. He is telling them exactly like it is. And listen, he ain't done. Verse 30 through 35, we're going to look at this section next. I can do nothing on my own. He keeps telling him this. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay, I'm going I'm to stop right there for a second. Once again, he says, I and the Father are one. The Son can do nothing on his own accord. What the Father does, the Son does. That's why my judgment is just. It is not my will. It is the Father's will. Understand, I do nothing for personal gain. I do nothing for my own agenda. And what, what's the insinuation in my heart towards them? Unlike you, who use your judgments every day on poor people just because they're a means to an end for you. I do nothing for my own personal gain. I and the Father are one, and that is why my judgments are just. Listen, the Jewish legal system, when he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying that everything he's just said is not true. He's saying, according to the way you guys operate, the Jewish legal system, according to you, my own word isn't enough. It won't cut it. The Jewish legal procedure was not based on the interrogation of the accused, but on the examination of witnesses. And according to the law in Deuteronomy 9.15, it needed to be two to three, two or three witnesses. And it was later specified that no one can bear witness for himself. If there were no witnesses, then the court just had to do their best to make a decision. But most of the time, they would make the person make an oath to God, trusting that if the person lied, that God would be the judge. According to Josephus, it is the previous life of the witness that will accredit their testimony. In other words, they, it's not really about how can we prove it, it's about who can we trust. And so the entire, your entire case would rest upon the actual character and life of your witness more than what they said. Well, I'm going to tell you what. Jesus had a pretty good witness. We're going to see. All right? So it goes on and it says, there is another, verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to you that he's actually talking about the Father, okay? And we're going to look at that in a second. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So think about this. Who could Jesus actually call to be his witness? Who does Jesus, who, who are the only ones that fully know all that he is? Well, the Trinity, okay? He's already given his testimony, and it's not enough. So the Spirit, the Spirit knows, but here's the problem. 
you know, in John 16, 13, he's called the spirit of truth. And he says, and I will send you the spirit of truth and he will teach you. He will basically reveal all truth to you. But the problem is, at this point, he hasn't been sent yet. And so that leaves the father. And he is saying, listen, I have one and his testimony is true. So we are going to see Jesus present the testimony of the Father, but the testimony of the Father is going to be through three things, okay? John the Baptist, the miracles, and the scriptures. So the Father's character isn't even questioned. And he is saying, the Father is testifying to you. My Father is standing up for me. How? He is testifying through the prophet John. He has testified through the miracles. And he has testified all along through the what? The scriptures. And so we're going to start with the first one. In 32 through 35, he talks about John the Baptist's witness. What was his witness? He says, point blank, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. What am I? I am the one Isaiah prophesied about. I'm the one that proclaimed the coming of the Lord. I am the one who was a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path, right? That's who he was. He goes on to say, I can do nothing. Oh, no. He goes on to say, who comes after me? Whoever comes after me, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And although I just told you that he came after me, I'm telling you, he is, he ranks before me because he was before me. What? I'm not the Christ. I'm just the voice of one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way. I'm not even worthy. This one that you're going to meet after me, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. And by the way, he is uh, greater than me because he actually was before me. And then he goes on and says, and I saw the spirit of God descend on him like a dove. I didn't know it was him. But the one who told me to go out and baptize also told me that the one I see, the spirit of God descend on and remain, that he is the one. And so now I'm telling you, I saw it. So I want you to know he is the Son of God. So the testimony of the Father through John the Baptist is this. As a prophet, I heard from God. I was sent out to baptize. I was told what to look for. I saw it, and I'm telling you, this is the Son of God. He's God. The testimony. There it was. It says that John was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Wow. Before that, it says, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Not that I need the testimony of man. Can you imagine? They are talking to the Son of God. God in the flesh. The same word that made everything. <laughs> and it's not good enough for them. Instead, they actually rely more on the character 
of John the Baptist. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus said John the Baptist was the best man ever born of a woman. But he is still fallen man. So they are willing to skip the testimony of the Son of God, the word that called all things into existence, and to rely on John. And then at the end of the day, they all agree he's a prophet. Every one of them agreed that John was sent from God, that he was a prophet. And yet what? They didn't believe what he said. Should we be surprised? What did they do in the Old Testament to the prophets? They killed them. They killed them. I got to thinking, have you ever felt like you had to justify yourself to someone or maybe someone's in this situation? You find yourself explaining, defending, and even justifying, trying to get them to understand, feeling misrepresented and misunderstood. I cannot imagine what he felt. But there's no arrogance in him. There's no pride in him. He is realizing they refuse to see. He is point blank telling them the truth of who he is, and they refuse to believe. When that happens to me, often I flip a switch. I don't know about you. You're probably more spiritual than me. And then all of a sudden, you kind of go the 180, and you think, who do you think you are? Like you have this indignation. Who do you think you are? Why are you in a position to judge me? Right? So one minute we feel completely on the defensive. And the next minute, what do we want to do? We want to go on the offensive. And one minute we want to raise ourselves up and justify. And the next minute we want to tear somebody else down. Am I the only person that does this? No, I hope not. I, put, I don't know how Jesus did this. But actually it says, not that the testimony that I have received is from man. The message says, my purpose is not to get your vote. He's not trying to get their vote. But I say these things that you may be saved. Oh my gosh. To be like Jesus. Right? Because how often do I want their freaking vote? Do you ever want that? I, I want their vote, or I want to be vindicated, or I want the truth to be known, or I mean, I'll own my stuff, but at least own yours. Like, I mean, do you know what I'm saying? But why? Why did he do this? Why did he literally cast pearls before swine? Because he, all, he always has one goal. What was it? That they would come to know, that they would be saved. I don't know if that makes any sense. Those, must, that, those might just be things God's working on in my life, but I just thought, oh my gosh. To have that pureness to where you are literally saying to them who you are and you are trying in every way to show them the way to salvation and they just refuse. And I'm sure they did it in a very condescending way. Isn't it amazing how the broken receive his testimony so much easier than the pious? Jesus knows what it is like not to be believed. He knows what it is like to be misunderstood. And he knows what it is like not to be esteemed. I hate all those things. I hate not being believed, don't you? I hate not being understood. 
And if I'm being honest, I hate not being esteemed. He understands all of that. And guess what? He did not need the testimony of man. He knew who he was. He was the son of God. Guess who you are? You're the daughters of the king. You only need one vote. His. You only need one person standing up for you, and that's the one who died for you. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So, you all agreed that John was a prophet. <laughs> but you wouldn't believe his message. Okay, let me try again. Let, let me make you understand. There's actually something greater than the testimony of John. It happens to be all of the works that I have shown you. I mean, for goodness sake, Nicodemus knew this, right? If you go back to John 3, 2, what did he say? We know, based on what we have seen, that you are from God. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't be able to do what? What we're seeing you do. This is unbelievable. So they literally believe that John the Baptist is a prophet, but they won't believe his message. And they absolutely believe, based on the miracles, that he was from God, but they won't believe him. They just won't. In John 7, 31, you can look at that verse later, but the people finally come to the conclusion, some people watching all that he has done, and they literally, in Hoffpower version, say, what else could there be left for a Messiah to do? Like, what else can he do to show you who he is? And don't forget that Jesus' works were in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. Therefore, they, the works, testified that the Father sent him. Even if you look at the works and the, the miracles that he did, the power to do so, every one of those lined up with the very nature of God. He never did one sign or miracle for his own gain. It always represented the Father. Others had performed signs and miracles. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, they never once questioned that they were from God. But the difference is Moses and Elisha and Elisha never claimed to be who? To be God. They never claimed that. They knew exactly that he was from God. Verse 37 and 38, the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. So what are the two witnesses through, God, through the father that we've looked at so far? John the Baptist and the miracles, the works, okay? Now we're going into a third. The Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. Once again, the Father has borne witness. But his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. I wish I would have been there for this one. I don't know how their heads did not blow off their bodies. In other words, he's reiterating, verse 32, that there is one that they don't know that is bearing witness. So to show them the Father's testimony, he uses John the Baptist, he uses works, and now he is going to hit them in their most sensitive spot, Scripture. 
This would have cut to the quick of their identity. What are they known for? To be experts of the scripture, to be experts of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings. One commentator said this, you have not his word abiding in in you, though you believe the scriptures to be of God, yet you do not let them take hold of your hearts. It's the same thing. I'm about to blow your mind because here they're like, John the Baptist we know is a prophet, but we don't believe what he says. The works show us that Jesus is from God. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. Nicodemus said, we know it. That's why he came to talk, but we don't believe you. The scriptures, I mean, he is sitting here saying, how in the word? The scriptures you know like the back of your hand, but yet what? You don't believe them. Psalms 119, I want you to see some stuff. I think this is so beautiful. So when he told them they did not have the scriptures in their heart, oh, snap. I'm just going to read you a few that they would have known, they could have quoted to you like you've never seen in your life. Psalms 119, blessed are those Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. What did they think about themselves? You think they kept those precepts diligently? Oh, that my way be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against God, all right? I think they understood the diligence, the keeping their eyes, but they missed some few terms in here. I circled it every time he talks about where the scripture actually needs to be in their heart. Let me show you something else. Go to Deuteronomy chapter six. It's called the Shema. You've probably heard of it. It's what they typically write on the little pieces of paper that they put in what some call phylacteries. These, uh, the Jewish men would put them in little black boxes. And if you go to Israel today, you can still see them. And they will put them, they will bind them to their hands and they will put it and bind them to the foreheads. And it refers to this in scripture later too, saying that they, what they tried to do is make those bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because it was all about outward appearance of righteousness. And so um, the Shema, these verses, are on a piece of paper. They are in there often. And they're also, right, they put them in at the, the doorpost of their home. So, but let me read to you what it actually says. Deuteronomy 6, I'm going to read 4, and then I'm going to skip down to 8. But you can go read the whole thing a little bit later. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be put on your heart. Skip down to verse 8. And you shall bind them as a sign 
on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, allow, allow the word of God to come down into your heart. And when it does, bind them on your hand and your forehead. Why? Because when it goes down into your heart, it will affect what you do and how you think. And instead, instead of them putting the word of God in their heart, they put it in a box. They put God in a box and instead strapped it outwardly onto their wrists and their forehead. Are you getting the picture? You've missed it. You've missed it. You've put the word of God in a box. And it's all about how you look on the outside Listen, God has always been about the heart. He has all, this has always been personal to him. It's always been about relationship. Even if you take a tour back through the Old Testament, you're gonna see he walked with Adam and Eve in relationship. You're gonna see that Abraham, Abraham, when he reached out, Abraham believed God and it says he became a what? A friend, with Moses, it said that Moses talked face to face with God as one does with a friend, and God did not talk in riddles. He talked to him straight. He spoke to the nation of Israel through the fire until the nation decided it was too much for them, and they said, oh, don't speak directly to us. Speak through Moses to us, and God did that. And then he continued to speak to and through the prophets. He's always been speaking. Listen, he even allowed himself to enter into a wrestling match with Jacob. You know what? I love that so much. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I would rather wrestle with God than miss him completely. Seriously. Let your kids or whoever wrestle. That means he's still there. That means they're still holding on. And I promise you, at the end of the day, the faith that is saving faith is a faith where you're getting beat up and beat to death and you really want to fight back and you're wrestling and wrestling, but at the end of the day, you just said, dang it, I'm going to hold on to you because you are the blessing. Do you understand that? He is the blessing. It is not about what he can do for us. It is about knowing him. And I promise you, when every identity of your whole life is stripped away in suffering, at the end of the day, you just realize, oh my gosh, I'm just going to hold on to you for dear life. You are the blessing. We are in a battle. And the victory does not happen until eternity. I don't think people in war are worried about their blessings and what they're accumulating and what is going on. No, we're in a spiritual battle. And so it is not, oh, if I obey God, then I will win my next matches. Or, oh, if I obey God, then my life is going to turn out. That's not scripture. No, I obey him because I stinking love him. He is my prize. We will suffer in this world. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. We don't trust God or follow God to receive blessing. We
We have done a disservice to our young people to think that if they're all in or they worship God or they put something on their forehead so everybody can see that their lives will be blessed. And what's happening is we have a whole generation who've gone through all kinds of crap and they realize that didn't work. He's mean. He's cruel. He doesn't do what he says. He never said that. We said that. He is the prize. He is the prize. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 16 through 18, actually, let's read it. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to see that word knowledge. That word knowledge in the Greek is epinosis. There are two different types of knowledge in the Greek. One is gnosis, which just means what? Knowledge. But epinosis is often described as wisdom, metabolized doctrine. Does that ring a bell to you? Do you remember me telling you if you come here every Tuesday and all you're living on is what I have chewed up and regurgitated? That's not going to work. Why? You need to metabolize it. You need to chew it. It also means a heart. It means heart. It means understanding. And what the, the picture is, is allowing it to go from the head to the heart. Head to the heart. Knowing scripture, meaning gnosis, isn't enough. Scripture isn't God it reveals God. It reveals it. It is not about being a Christian and gaining knowledge. That does nothing. All that does is, honestly, if that's all you're doing, that's just going to puff you up just like the Pharisees. The Bible is not about gaining knowledge. I don't even know how to put it into words. The Bible is when you're in it and you're reading it, and it might not even be some amazing, it's what happens inside of you when it is occurring. It's what it does in you. It is when this knowledge starts to come down in your heart and you begin to have more and more understanding of who Jesus is. And it will then come out, it will change your thoughts and it will change your behavior. It will because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I think we strive after all the attributes instead of striving after him. The more you're with him in scripture, the more you get to know him, the more time you spend with him, the more you will be like him. It's not about me giving you a message you never heard. I've never heard that before. She blew my mind today. I promise you, in an hour and a half, it, is, it has done you no good. You've forgotten it, and next week you want to come for another chunk. And then the next week you come for another but he's like, you don't even remember my words. Why? Because you need to chew it. It's about what happens inside of you. The reason I love to teach the Bible is because I'm like, okay, God, you made me a pretty darn good storyteller. I can tell a story. I am not, 
My mom and I were talking about this the other day. I am not some brilliant theologian. Now, I spend a lot of time. I don't think that is my, uh, my main gift. I think my gift is communicating something that seems so massive and so difficult and all of that into a way that the normal everyday person can understand it. That's what I think. And if I can give you deeper understanding to want to be in the word, as you're in the word, it's going to drop from head down into your heart and you will be transformed. And this is what they are missing throughout history, through the scriptures, God has made himself known. He's saying, that is the reason I am here. I am here that you may see God. I spoke to you face to face and you didn't believe me. You wouldn't believe the New Testament prophet John. And you wouldn't believe the signs and wonders confirming that I am God. You wouldn't believe what you heard or what you saw. The message says this, the Father who sent me confirmed me. And you missed it. You never heard his voice. You never saw his appearance. There is nothing left in your memory of his message because you do not take his message seriously or to heart. It says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You have claimed to be experts of the scripture. But yet you've missed the one that scripture is about. Me. Me. I got to thinking about this the other day. How many times I get caught up in the narrative or the story of scripture, or trying to understand the word, or understand this, and how many times do I not just back up and I, I just miss him? Him. Got to thinking about my message that I give with Hannah, about how she went, let it rip to the Lord. You know, and, I, and, I, and I'm into, oh, she called her Jehovah, and the Lord of hosts, and all of that, but Really, wasn't it at the end of the day when life was falling apart? She just needed him. Just him. He's like, how? You think you're an expert in the scriptures? How in the world have you gained so much knowledge? Gnosis. And you have not in any way let it drop down into your heart. So much that you can't see what is literally right before your eyes. You can't see it. And we're going to see next week. They couldn't see it because they were unwilling. They were unwilling. And next week, we're going to see even deeper. Listen, salvation is the will of God. It's all him, not us. That's what he told to Nicodemus. You can't no more be born again on your own than you can jump back in your mother's womb. It is all God, but I promise you, judgment is all based on the unwillingness of man. And we're going to see it. They were unwilling. And because they were, they literally could not see the evidence right before their eyes. So much more to say, but I'm out of time. Have you ever been in that where you just think, feel like you have the greatest case on earth? Really? Like, how can someone not see this? And they just refuse. And so guess what? He is, a, he is going to turn and go to those who will. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today.
God, I pray that um, you will draw them to you, that they will get your face in the book, not because it's a requirement, because it's a privilege because of what you do inside of us when we spend time in your word. It's what happens when we allow the head knowledge to drop down into heart, to have understanding, when our eyes are enlightened about who you are and we marvel and we glorify you. And at that moment, we seek to please you, not out of obligation, but out of love. And so, God, may we be that. May we be lovers of you. And may we be not concerned about the audiences of man or an image, but the audience of one who knows us and loves us and died for us and will walk through this life with us until we receive the hope of the glory that you have for us. We sure love you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.